3: Hey, this is DeRay. I'm to Pod Save the People. This is our first episode in 2024. Pumped to have you back. It's me, Diara, Miles, and Kaya talking about the news that you don't know with regard to race, justice, and equity of the past week. And we cover some of the final stories of 2023 that we didn't talk about because we were off air. We're back. Never been better. And let's go. Family.
4: Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Am I going to get some background? Like, yay, or. Ooh, 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 ooh. 2024. Happy New Year. Oh, I hope we're starting a little better than that. <laughs> Happy New Year, y'all. <laughs> Welcome to another episode, the first episode of 2024 of Pod Save the People. I am DR Ballinger. You can find me on Instagram at DR Ballinger.
5: I'm Milesy e. Johnson. You can find me at Feral Rapture on TikTok and Instagram and Twitter. And threads. I'm Kaya
0: Henderson. You can find me on X, Twitter, at Henderson Kaya.
4: This is Dre, at D-R-E-Y on Twitter. So we're going to kick off the new year with some very, <laughs> some breakthrough news in Black culture. We're talking about Cat Williams, y'all. We're not going to spend a lot of time on this. I don't want us to spend a lot of time on this because... It's been so much of the hot takes during my family vacation that I've been on. I say vacation in quotes because I have family in front of vacation. So not only have I heard clips, but my brothers have been also giving, showing my mom and I clips of different people's perspectives and versions. Like Ice Cube. I think I actually listened to like Ice Cube speak for 10 minutes on Cat Williams. So I'm not going to go so deep, deep into this. I I think... The the newest thing I saw this morning is that Cat Williams also made Trick Daddy mad with his club Shay Shay Remarks. And so now Trick Daddy's gonna do a diss a diss song around Cat Williams, ludicrous, I think, already put out his diss track. So, you know, the blacks of the of the two thousands and the nine Damn. nines are really <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's what's going on. We're just about to show up in 2024. Okay. But essentially, y'all, so Cat Williams was on this interview and he went in on basically all the black male comedians um, and talked about folks like Ricky Smiley, uh, Cedric the Entertainer, um, a bunch of other people. I ain't going to remember their names. Some of these people only know by face in the movies. Steve Uh, (laughs) Harvey. Oh, Steve. Again, like I'm not. I'm not even going to say that man's name, but all that to say, he said that they're sellouts, that they um they'll do anything for a check basically. Um and he is above all all that. I think what's interesting and what I the way I've been thinking about this, I also watched an episode of Married to Medicine with my mom and aunt last night and they love this show. I am just thinking in my mind as like from political strategy perspective with black folks like The things that are breaking through for us culture-wise, generationally, I'm a little bit concerned about values here. Just going to be, have that unpopular opinion. Um, But yeah, so interested on on y'all's hot take because this thing has gotten so much traction. It is wild.
5: I'm not quite sure if I would pathologize Black people like that, because you know, white people are able to get in a Republican and watch Honey Boo Boo at the same time, so I think we can do the same thing. And this is a... A, I love mess. I love mess. And <laughs> <laughs> this is the messiest of mess. I, mm. I was I was there plugged in. I enjoyed this more than the remake of The Color Purple. I was like, this is what I think should be nominated at the Emmys and Golden Globes. Um... And I think that what made it really compelling as a piece of Black uh, comedy or a piece of Black content was the fact that it was cross-generational. Cat Williams was talking about Kevin Hart, Steve Harvey. There's actually not a whole lot of stuff that me and my mom could be like, did you see that? And she cares as much as I care. So I think that that was also what made it really compelling um, as well. But no, I love it. I hope it keeps... Coming, I love that the Epstein list and the Cat Williams thing came out on the same day. I hope oh, yeah. 2024 is real messy. It makes my job real easy. Yeah.
4: And my <laughs> brothers were very, very pro Cat Williams. The only thing that got lost on is when he said he reads about th- three thousand books a year, and then they did the math and they were like, in yeah. possible.
5: But he, he yeah, had, are he missing really liars ha- like that. I love he that he really <laughs> had
4: them until that, and then they're like, wait. Well and i was like if that's that's what's giving y'all pause oh, okay, all right <laughs> <laughs>
0: Y'all I'm trying to figure out, to right figure now, out like- where where I'm trying to figure out where I want to enter here. So I'll start by saying I think that this is the biggest marketing move that we've seen in a very long time. I think Cat Williams is brilliant, right. right? He's got a tour coming out, and people are now, it doesn't matter what he said, but because what he said was so it so controversial and so culture stirring that like all his uh, concert dates will be sold out, which is brilliant. Club Shay Shay had like one million listeners or viewers or whatever before this. And now there's like a booga gazillion people, right? So for both Shannon Sharp and Cat well, we've never had a like three hour pure mess interview before, right? So that breaks formats and stuff like that. So I think it's, I think it has been a interesting cultural phenomenon to watch. And just how many people, Miles, as you said it, like it is a range of people who are looking at this. Old people, young people, skinny people, fat people, smart people, dumb people, the whole nine, (laughs) right? Everybody has seen something about this. Um, And I just like, I think part of me just sees it as comedy. Like I think the whole thing is comedy. I think we're now, there are people who we're talking about who we haven't talked about in a long time because they showed up in the thing. Um, I was listening to the Steve Harvey, Harvey Morning Show this morning to hear if he said anything. Steve ain't saying a word. Um, I had like ludicrous a diss track, Trick Daddy. When was the last time we had a conversation about Trick Daddy? Who knows? But guess what? We're going to be talking about Trick Daddy now. So I think, I think the whole thing is um, a piece of performance art. And I'm a little bit, I mean... Miles, I'm with you on we can do walk and chew gum at the same time. But I am I am a little bit worried about how many people have taken this like really, really seriously and are like debating hard and what's the truth and what like I don't know. For me, it's not worth that much time and attention, but cat on, why don't
3: you? Cat on. I will say uh two things that really stuck with me. One is that Kat was offering an actually really beautiful critique of just the whole celebrity interview culture in that interview. And it's hidden because it's three hours long. But at one point when he embellishes, over embellishes and and Shannon Sharp doesn't challenge him, Kat says something like, you know, people can just say anything they want on here. Right. Like you're like, Mm -hmm. yes, you know, like Mm -hmm. you just, he just, he offers the critique within the medium that I thought was actually really beautiful and the second thing um, is that there is a generation of people who did things and might have been shady before the internet, but there is an internet. So when Cal Williams is like, this person stole my joke, this person took this joke, this person took it took 10 minutes and people had the side-by-side videos, people had the like cuts and the but it didn't matter when it was 1970 and there were no, there was no internet. You could sort of steal people's material and there was no consequence for it. And all of a sudden, that's why Steve ain't got nothing to say. Because they pulled Steve. Steve took from Hanging with Mr. Cooper. Steve took from Cat Williams. Um, and then, Cat, to your point, it was really beautiful to see a reminder of Black comedy. Because what it also turned into, I forgot about those iconic moments when Monique hosted the BT Awards. She is a funny woman. I mean, they pulled what, her, her exchange with the Ying Yang twins. <laughs> spell it. Spell They're it. Like, <laughs> spell it. Like, it just reminded me of the beauty of Black comedy. And I was like, you know what, Cat? Thank you for this. This was in three, a three-hour podcast and something, almost 30 million views. He did that. And the
5: l- little geeky thing that I want to say about it, too, is that sometimes we're, like, so forced to do things so short and the fact that, like, oh, like we don't have a you know wide attention spans or whatever, and we do because <laughs> a lot of people. Last time I checked, it could be way over that, but twenty five million people looked at a three hour piece of internet content with no set changes, no anything. So apparently, people do have attention spans when uh, when messes evolved. So
4: well, speaking of another mess, um, over the break, Claudine Gay who. We had a conversation around her and um, the president of UPenn testifying about um, what was happening on campus, given the the Israel's war on Palestine. Um, and we got breaking news that I think it was right before was it right before New Year's maybe? New or that um, that's Claudine Gay was actually right going to resign? After. Was it right after? Right after? And so you know, I I I actually was a bit surprised by it. I, I thought that things would settle and she'd be able to continue her tenure there. But evidently she lost the support of some board members, but it seemed, and there's so many articles on this, and she wrote an op-ed herself. It seems that there were board members that actually never probably supported her tenure in the first place. And so I think saw this as an opportunity to get her to step down. And there are a lot of conversations around, you know, them not seeing her as being qualified, Um, And this sort of campaign against her, um, you know, to show or to prove that she somehow plagiarized her work, um, even though Harvard did their own investigation and said that that wasn't true. And she has said countless times that that wasn't true and also has offered to kind of recite some of her research. Um, Nevertheless, like that, just just the accusation of it has gotten so much wind and so much power that... You know that was always also leveraged against her. At the end of the day, she wanted the focus to be less on her as an individual and more on how the school can move forward collectively. Um, so that's what's happening, and it's you know it's it's a, it's a it's an interesting an interesting an interesting time. But I think it just it 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 really beckons for so much conversation—one around race, but also around race and leadership. Also, race and leadership in white institutions. Um, So interesting to hear what you all have to say, because this also, like Cat Williams, has been everywhere. Who would have thunk that these would be (laughs) our two top Black stories going into 2024?
5: We have range (laughs) as a people.
4: There's a lot about the Claudine Gay
0: situation. Um, but I think the thing that, one of the things that's most interesting to me is how this thing happened, right? And I'm, I'm going to put Claudine Gay aside. I don't have an opinion on whether she plagiarized or she didn't or whatever, whatever. But this is not just about Claudine Gay. This is in the context of a much larger conversation, including the right wing, who is, has been targeting wokeism, DEI initiatives and all of that. And they, um, targeted her as a DEI hire said she was unqualified and went on a full out campaign to take her down like period of the end and they are unapologetic about that right like there are articles about it i posted an article on my facebook page about it i'll i'll send it in so that we can post it here but literally christopher rufo who is the dude who sparked all of the anti crt frenzy was like here's what we did we targeted her We knew that all we needed to do was raise the doubts about her and the conservative media, and we knew that the left-wing liberal people would then pick it up, have a feeding frenzy on each other, and kick her out. So we knew exactly what we All we had to do was put it out and then squeeze is what he says. And um, add to that, Bill Ackman, who is a huge hedge fund guy in New York who's a Harvard alum who is has given, you know, tens of millions of dollars to Harvard, not Harvard's largest giver, but an influential giver, who was mad cuz he gave tens of millions of dollars and Harvard wasn't listening to his investment advice and she didn't pick up the phone when he wanted to tell her what he had to say about what she should be doing about the, the you know, war in Gaza. Like She was not responsive to him. She passed him on to the chair of the board. And he was mad. And he was like, I'm going to take her out. And so they put tons of resources on taking her down. And because mess begets mess, um, Bill Ackman's wife, who, is, who was a professor at MIT— um, in fact, let me just back up and say, they went after the MIT president. The, they are they went after the Penn president. They went after Claudine Gay. And next they're coming for the MIT president. Um, in fact, Bill Ackman's wife is a former professor at MIT. And so Business Insider has done a big plagiarism study and figured out that Bill Ackman's wife actually plagiarized as well. And there's more and more stuff coming out. And Bill is like, okay, we going to play the plagiarizing thing. I'm going to sick AI on, I, we don't even have to wait for newspapers to do this. I am going to build a machine and we are going to investigate every the president of MIT, all of the faculty members, all of the board members, all of the reporters at Business Insider. I am going after everybody and we are going to figure out how everybody plagiarized. And so this thing is humongous for you know, Claudine Gay is the first Black president of Harvard in the shortest tenure and all of that stuff. And it is the beginning of what is going to be an avalanche of an attack on higher education in the United States by rich funders, which people, rich white people. How about that?
3: One of the things that I'll say is, um, so, so much going on here. And I was questioning myself about why did, uh, where were the rest of the presidents at that, Hearing. And I read that one of them just didn't come, said he was out of town. And I love that because I think there's a part of participating in the circus with people who have no morals, no values, who are literally just trying to get you caught up. And when you come in in good faith, they just use it against you. And that's what we saw like all three of those presidents, what they were saying, everybody understood. They couldn't come out and just be like, yes, anything you think is anti Semitism automatically gets you kicked out of the university. They were like, we need to understand what happened and the and the circumstance. That's what they were trying to say. And those people knew that. But I love that one of the people just, or like some of them just didn't show. I think that is great. And they had a reason for it. They didn't just say like, I'm not coming. But like, I do think that sometimes we in our good faith try and show up in places that are just surrounded by bad faith. And I don't think it's possible to win in those circumstances. The second thing I'll say about Claudine um is you know she she survived it and then all of a sudden she was gone we were like goodness gracious i thought she i thought she didn't get fired and then she's gone on a um i'm hopeful that there will be a black president again and you know the interim person that they have is <laughs> clearly not black um and it was also interesting to see claudine and it made me sort of sad in some way like defend the institution and her final statement, you know, like she's still riding hard for this place. It didn't, I don't know, ride hard for her. Um, and they, and they knew her intent. Like they knew she was not anti-Semitic. If anything, she's out here, you know, towing the line around some of the Israel stuff. So, um, and they still threw her away. So I just want to say that out loud about like, you know, you come in trying to do all the things and do it right in a in a context that is not good faith, and it's hard to win there. Yeah, I really feel like you
5: win white liberal, like you play white liberal games, you uh, you know, get white liberal prizes. And I think what just like kind of zooming out, what oh, what disturbs me most about this is just the pure fact that sh- she's a conservative woman. Like the, even her us like painting her as this like. Beacon of diversity and of like radicalism inside of this white liberal institution is a stretch, right? Like it's a, it's 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 a it's a stretch, and they still wanted to make an example out of her. And I guess my bigger question, right? Not just to zo- zoom out from just Claudine Gay, like how long are Black people gonna tango with these things that will eat you up? at the best at, at this first opportunity. And the other thing that um just disturbs me about this story is how utterly toothless the white liberal uh people in that institution were. It, it it's uh, like the ca- it's so cowardly. It's so um j- just the, the cowardice that they that, that they are that they have shown that they are showing just shows that those conservatives, if that's what we want to call them, <laughs> <laughs> you know conservatives i call them white supremacists those white supremacists see how 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 toothless and feeble that um people's politics are and with 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 one threat with one with one little uh concerted focused threat everything could go falling down and they won and they're going to continue winning because white liberalism is 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 fluid and it has no backbone and it has no teeth. And they yes. see that and yes. they know that they, that they, that week that, that those people, those institutions care more about, you know, not to minimize it just to this, but being canceled or being seen a certain type of way more than they care about actually abiding by a political, Standard or political center, and if you don't have a political center, then it's going to be easy to knock you down. And I, I guess my bigger thing is: when will Black people stop participating in that and stop putting up their dignity and and and, and risking their humiliation in order to help erect something that just will that will that will e- quickly and easily see you fall if it gets a chance? This story just drives me. Drives me nuts.
3: <laughs> hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Stay tuned, there's more to come.
0: Pod Save the People is brought to you by Factor. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factor's no prep, no mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never frozen meals Stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Now, let me tell y'all, they sent me the factor meals, and it is absolutely true. Two minutes, pop it in a microwave, and it literally is restaurant-quality food. So far, my favorites are chicken parmesan. I am a chicken parmesan connoisseur. This stuff is good. It has broccoli and tomatoes, and it is creamy and amazing. Mmm, yum. So easy to throw it in the microwave and have a good meal. I'm saving money. I'm not...
3: atlp.com slash people Guys, it's been
2: a rough year it's gonna get rougher and you deserve a little treat for not going insane yet you could head to the local tiki bar and tell the bartender do your worst
4: Well, speaking of white liberals, I'm going to move into the (laughs) 2024 presidential election on the Democratic side. So I have been, it's honestly, I don't know if it's because my PTSD from 2016 has worn off, but it's like I have been reading everything when it comes to this election and this administration and what is happening and what's going on on the ground and so the biggest thing, well, Biden gave a speech the other day. We're not talking about the speech, but it was a pretty decent speech. But uh, he's he's been making the rounds and like in really campaign style because this election will be here any day. Like as we get through the spring and the summer, boom, we're there. Um, and so, you know, we've been talking about on this podcast sort of the decline of support and interest Around President Biden with the Black community, we've been talking about it probably ad nauseum for I don't know since he got into office, and now, now in December of 2023, the Biden campaign has decided to turn turn some turn some 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 attention. And strategy towards South Carolina. So we know that South Carolina is an early primary state. It's super important in terms of being an indicator of how the presidential candidate is going to do, and particularly with black voters. So it's a place where there is a lot of play around how the black voters will come out. What's the engagement strategy look like? um, And and what we haven't been able to get to in terms of numbers in South Carolina with the Black community is numbers, Barack Obama numbers. Those numbers were off the charts. And so, you know, I think in the Biden campaign's mind, it's like, well, how can we get our numbers to be that? Well, you can't, number one. Number two, how how can we start putting time and attention into the state and really with this strategy around, we're just going to tell black voters all the things that we've been doing for black voters. And so it, it comes down to a messaging, you know, sort of complications around messaging because people just aren't seeing or feeling it. Right. So people are still feeling like the pain and the consequence of inflation. um, And, and so I think it, it really is hard for this message with the, with, the Biden campaign around we've done all these things and like economically everyone is doing better now when people just aren't really feeling it and psychologically not feeling it and not feeling connected. So what's interesting here is that you know we continue to see the polls and the focus groups expressing frustration with Democrats from the Black community um, and also just you know sort of a perspective that they've seen few improvements to their well-being under the Biden presidency and some. Black folks are unsure whether they will vote at all. So party leaders, particularly in South Carolina, among other places, um, are hoping for large showings at the polls when it comes to the primary um, so that they can broadcast to the rest of the country and the rest of Black voters that there is support for President Biden's re-election. And they want to use this to re-energize and exec- essentially like ignite momentum as, as, as we've seen previously, but as we go into 2024 but, you know, and the other thing that I thought was really key to this article um, is that in South Carolina, you know, this is kind of the first time that black voters are going to first choose the president. Right. So it's like the first time there's like a big population of black folks voting. And so we're going to see what what that outcome is. Right. And so is if it, is it low turnout? Is it increased support to Donald Trump? Like we're really going to be able to see this and see it soon. Marlon Kipson, who's a longtime Biden ally and a former state senator, and he, he has, he's actually now on the, on the White House Advisory Committee for Trade Policy and Negotiations, he attributes to Black folks not being so excited about Biden to poor communication, quite frankly, out of Washington, D.C., and that and this communication is not improving. Um, so I think we all believe that to be true. I think we're all sort of positioning to figure out you know how how that can be supported, how that can be how there can be a shift um, in how that communication is landing. Um, But over the next several weeks, Democrats will be focused on South Carolina. Um, We'll see what happens with with President Biden's appeal there to to black folks in particular. But I just found this story to be interesting because I think now of course Democratic Party, which we do every time it's like when your feet are to the fire, then it's like, oh, we should focus on this thing. When we could have been focusing on this thing for, I don't know, 50 years. So just wanted to bring this to the pod because, you know, we're going to continue to do more and more political um, thought and reporting as we get closer to the election. So I thought this one was interesting.
5: You know what this reminds me of? And I wish it didn't. It reminds me of just kind of that like long-term boyfriend you have. And on and off, and then
3: uh, uh, he, he yes. don't he don't he
5: don't got the rent no more. and He needs to stay with you. And then all of a sudden, you the love of my life, and I'm back. And baby, 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 baby. That's what the Democratic Party reminds me of right now. I just saw it a couple of days ago. The um, it was her a Korean, the the um, white, the White House secretary. I just witnessed her. When asked and pushed about the COVID numbers, I just witnessed her say, that's not something that we handle and that we do. We're letting each state handle that. We're letting each state figure those things out and as hospitals are going. And then I look at the numbers and then I'm looking at the articles in LA Times, this really good op-ed came out with LA Times, really talking about the surge and how come nobody's talking about it and how come everybody's getting sick. And I'm saying, well, the whole thing with Trump was he doesn't care about humanity He's putting kids in cages. And then here we are dying, getting sick as well. And you're saying, well, the hospitals have to figure it out. So the one thing Black people are, two things. <laughs> two things are the one. one. One thing about Black people, we're not, we're, 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 we get to it. You know, we can pretty much hear BS. We know we 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 have a really good gauge of when we're getting when we're getting jive. I sound like my mother when we're getting jived around something. So I think that's a big thing. And the other thing, um, the other thing that we are as well are people who are deeply um, interested in 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 in. In both political change, but we also are very moved by representation. So because Biden does not have that, <laughs> because he's a white old man, so he doesn't have that move of uh even when Obama was doing things and saying things and even with the with the um with all the pushback from like maybe like a Cornell West or a Tavis Smiley or all that other stuff, there was still this kind of like look at this man and this woman inside the White House that really could move black people. Biden's not ever gonna have that, right? So the other thing that you have to do is really show us that you care, and you having this Black woman totally uh be so dismissive, that just boggles my mind. That really boggled my mind. And we're not even getting into the Palestine-Israel stuff, which totally shifted me. Like, I'm still... Like, I won't know what I'm doing until the day before the election or until October of this year as far as voting, as far as participating in the election, because I, the 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 guilt of... In the in the in the in the in the messiness that I feel inside supporting him is just it's just profound. And um it's hard to uh pragmatic my way out of this This like kind of like deep moral um conflict that's happening inside of my spirit. And yeah, for all those things to be happening and then all and and, and, and for and, and for things to just be so dismissed, yeah, this doesn't feel right for me. It doesn't yeah. I, I can and, see why they're having trouble. <laughs>
4: and and Miles, I will say just as a clarifying point, because this is something that I learned over the break too, is that this campaign is really going to lean into the state parties, which isn't typically how it's done, right? And so I think it's gonna be interesting to see even how the DNC really sort of builds an infrastructure or rebuilds an infrastructure because basically what happened y'all is Barack Obama did not use a DNC when he had his election so we have still been trying to rebuild the DNC for quite some time I don't know if anybody's told y'all that but so now we're really going to rely on these state parties and use the DNC as a vehicle for a lot of the campaign's infrastructure and so these it's a lot of work it's like a lot to do across these states, and to not have like the And it's, like and it's the too full little, pro- too late. It's. It, I mean, let's yeah. hope it's not too late. But this, like
0: this, this article is astounding to me. It really. If I wasn't worried before, I sure am worried now. Like South Carolina is incredibly important because, in fact, in twenty, I think it was in twenty twenty three the Democratic Party voted to shift its first presidential primary away from Iowa to South Carolina. So this makes South Carolina the first for the Democratic primary season. And South Carolina literally shifted the tide, South Carolina, Georgia, Arizona. But South Carolina literally shifted the presidential campaign, the presidential race, the last time for Biden, in part because Black surrogates went out galvanized the South Carolinian community and people showed up for Biden in ways that like the presidential race was not going his way until South Carolina turned right and so you would think it's the first it is the place that delivered me I'm going to invest a whole lot we going to shore up our thing in South Carolina this thing says there is a six figure cash infusion from the DNC six figures That means that at best, they have given them (laughs) $999,000 to do... uh, Are you kidding me? Wait till till I do my news and talk about how much people are spending in Iowa. And you think about a less than a million dollar contribution in South Carolina to make that joker pop the first time that the, the, I mean, running on a pose, like this should be a What do you call it? Like a a a home run. This should be a like a easy lob for these people, but and you telling me we're workshopping messages with black voters? Are you kidding me? Who are the people who? have been on the ground. Who are the people that you should have been working with before? We are the ladies like the Georgia ladies who literally turned that whole state purple. Like, are you kidding me? We don't have an infrastructure in South Carolina. And then the thing goes on to say, we have little to no presence in Georgia, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania. That's what happened to Hillary Clinton. Did we not learn from that? Like, what in tarnation is going on here? This <laughs> is bananas. Like, That's It literally tarnation. is bananas. I don't, I don't, I don't know <laughs> jack about running a presidential <clears throat> campaign, but but I do know that places like Georgia and Wisconsin and Pennsylvania matter. I know that when we did not show up there before, when Hillary did not show up there before, nobody voted for her. So what do, What do people think is going to happen? Good googly moogly. I, Neither uh, do they listen. apparently.
4: Honey. Wha. You got it. Yeah. And they're just starting to open offices now from what I from what I've been told. So, Jesus. yeah, a lot. We're just getting in to these states. But Miles said it, right? Miles said it. This your boyfriend
0: who shows up when the rent when he don't have the rent money. And we gotta stop treating black people like this. We have to stop like anyway, Duray, I'm sure you're gonna have something really profound to say. Cause mm.
3: Yeah, I just wanna say that um I do think so much of this is like the infrastructure stuff and it's like the storytelling piece. The Corinne, um the press secretary to me her dismissiveness was actually shocking. Like, I was shocked because Biden's whole thing was, I'm going to do COVID right. I'm going a, I'm to a really do it. And then to just, like, it wasn't even like a, hey, I hear you, but we try. It was like, there was a tonal dismissiveness that was sort of weird. You're like, well, that is that's not what you want. The second thing I'd say is that I see the Democrats not being able to, I think Hillary did this really well and she got punished for it. So maybe people are scared. But Hillary was like, the people are crazy, don't vote for crazy. Like it was, she didn't sort of like, she didn't go in the middle. What did she call them, deplorable? Like she, they are deplorable. Like she sort of said the thing out loud. And I do think there's something happening with the left that like, I do think we need to like paint the picture black and white or like give people like, you know, do you think that kids deserve school lunch or not? Like, and I feel like the messaging that I hear is like so middle of the road and nuanced and and like, I don't know. I really worry about Andrew, that. Kai, they you also about to don't say? put
4: him in black spaces, right? They send Kamala. So whether well, I don't know if he's
3: really <clears throat> the storyteller we needed this moment because <clears throat> <clears throat> <throat> <throat> I was at the White House and he <clears> throat> 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 is whispering.
4: But it it but it is important, right? So I think it is also important, like like I would I would write memos for Hillary to like talk to Q Tip. You know what I'm saying? Like it was like you gonna talk to everybody, and I think that's the difference here is that like where is he? You know what I'm saying? Like you gotta be. You, you got to be where the people are. And even if you're not the right messenger, there are like some old Black church ladies that will be excited to see him come show up on a Sunday morning. So I think it is, it's just, it, it also, there's a messaging issue, but there's also just an access issue, right? Like who is who is working with him to make sure he's in the places and spaces that he needs to be so that we are feeling like, even if I'm not feeling like my day-to-day is better, I feel like at least... I I can have some type of, you know, I can have some type of interaction with you, whether how big or small, that that shows me that you're rooting for me. And I think that's the piece that's missing, too.
0: I don't think that's enough anymore. And, DeRay, to your point, right, like, the alternative is worse, like... That's that that's a message that I could carry for one cycle or so. But that's what we did the last time. Right. Like, right. don't vote for him. He was horrible. We're going to do better. And now the message again is don't vote for them. They're horrible. But we we should have a mountain of things to of evidence to say why we're better. We should be running our own race, not running. Against the other, and so I, I just think that people are like, "Okay, we did the the alternative is worse once, but show me something because my paycheck ain't right, my groceries are higher, and and you know we've talked a lot on this podcast about all of the positive things that the Biden administration has done, but that the message is not getting through, and so this is a I think this is a really a crisis moment." Um, around not just messaging, but Black people need to know
3: what what you're going to do for us. What are you going to do for yeah. us? Yeah, I actually don't disagree. I, so maybe let me clarify. I'm not saying a choice between, like, or vote for us just because the other side is worse. I'm saying that I don't think people understand where the lines have already been drawn. So things like the insulin. Like, no, I feel like the left doesn't come out and say, we put a $35 cap in, and all of those people voted against it. Or like, so I think that people, I think that when I've heard the left talk about it, they will say we did it and don't sort of like make it clear that literally everybody else everybody else was like, die, for, die you know what I mean? And be in the absence of telling a story like that, I do think that people don't rack the winds up. I don't think that people understand even this, like, what are you liking on what has been done, the the loans or like hasn't said, you know, I could do this but the Supreme Court. Like, I think there's like a simple storytelling about even the good stuff that's happened, that I think is sort of lost in these weird briefs and stuff in a way that is not getting through, and I find that with pe- people, you know, call me some. My aunts and stuff will call my aunt and I will call about some policy stuff, and I'm like, "Girl, I that you're right that I don't know how you would know the answer to that. I don't, I don't know. You know, you're not watching CNN all day. Like that makes sense to me. Um, so, so I am worried on the storytelling piece. Yeah. And, I, and I, think I think
4: the storytelling piece, <clears throat> just real quick, I think the storytelling piece, yes, is important, but it's also you this man doesn't have a familiarity with Black folks. Because even with Hillary, it was like, but Bill. Even with Barack Obama, didn't nobody know him, but he was Black. So I think there is a cultural piece that's here that's missing. And that's when I talk about accessibility, when I talk about him presencing himself. I think that's important because it's almost like you're introducing yourself to Black people. And all these and, and part of it is the messaging of these accomplishments, but also it's like, and Miles, I think this goes to your point around Palestine. It's also what you've done before. This is a man that's been in public service for like 60 years. So it's like, what, what is the full picture? Like, who are you to us? Not what, what you're going to do for us moving forward or work with us to do for ourselves, but like, what, what, is, what is the complete story? given that you've been in office this whole long time. And also, you know, use Barack Obama. You were his vice president. I would be saying, (laughs) that would be my campaign speech. I was his vice president. So not completely, but you know what I'm saying? Like, I think there is some, there's just something, there's something cultural around something that's missing here. Something that the miss around the touch and the access from, from my perspective.
5: And I know we have to um, move on shortly, but also I think it's weird to see, and, you know, I'm 32, which is which is not quite a spring chicken, but I don't want to pretend like I was just, like, totally present for 90s politics. Um, but it's weird to see the right get progressively more right. <laughs> and for the left to stay in this very center center left place that's actually just seeming like conservatism to other people. And now that we have these things like um like COVID reminds people of HIV AIDS when it comes to the dismissiveness. So it's not of course they're not the same, but there there are parallels to be drawn. Um I think Israel and Palestine, the the those things really remind people of these kind of um uh, line in the sand situations that really separate people fr- from from um, conservatism to leftism, and it just feels like Joe Biden is really pretending like it's 1998, and it's not. <laughs> you know, it's it's really not, and it's and, it, and it's and it's interesting that I totally get the whole AOC and all those like newcomers and all that rift, but it's interesting to see an administration who seems to not have absorbed any of that. Outside of the representation, didn't even did it did absorb any of the Bernie Sanders right. stuff. Didn't just 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 saying nope. It's 1996, and we're riding out. And you know, we 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 need more. I don't want. I don't. I hate how extreme sounds, but we need more extreme left ideas. It's not even and extreme. Language. It's just
4: it's just right. It, not right, but it, it's just like the present. Like we need yeah. present time communication around what we're doing.
3: Don't go anywhere. More Potting the People's coming.
2: Guys, it's been a rough year. It's going to get rougher, and you deserve a little treat for not going insane yet. You could head to the local Tiki Bar and tell the bartender, do your worst.
0: Continuing the thread of political parties ignoring Black people, let me take you to a week from today, ironically, which will be Dr. King's birthday, when Iowans will go to the polls to vote in the first Republican presidential caucus. Um, The Iowa caucus happens January 15th, and since 1972, it has been the first and some people would argue the most important primary on the road to each party's presidential nomination until 2023, as I said earlier, when the Dems voted to replace Iowa with South Carolina. And that's at least according to history.com. It is important. It is very important. All you hear about coming out of the Republican presidential campaigns are the Iowa caucus. In fact, in mid-November, Trump, Haley, and DeSantis' campaigns were spending about a million dollars a week on ads in Iowa and they're all spending even more leading up to the 15th With Nikki Haley's campaign now spending $3 million per week on ads. Contrast that against the Dems' six-figure spend in South Carolina, but I'm going to leave that right there. Um, I also want to underscore the importance not just by how much they're spending, but by how much time the Republican presidential candidates have spent in Iowa. So, Mr. Trump has been at over 30 events in 18 visits to Iowa since March. Um, Nikki Haley has held about 62 events. Ron DeSantis has appeared at 138 events since May, and he's visited all 99 counties in Iowa. And uh, Ramaswamy... Vivek Ramaswamy also visited all 99 counties, and he has held more than 250 events in Iowa. So this makes it especially insulting that not one of the Republican presidential candidates can make time to attend the nation's oldest minority-focused presidential forum, the Iowa Black and Brown Presidential Forum. Say what now? Between 30 and 250 events in Iowa visit in all 99 counties, and you can't go to the one Black and Brown Forum. The Black and Brown Presidential Forum focuses on issues of nat- national significance like crime and education and the economy, and it gives the presidential candidates an opportunity to tailor their messages specifically for communities of color. It was founded in 1984 by Wayne Ford, who was a Black former state rep in Iowa, and Mary Campos, an Iowa-based Latina activist. You know, it's the Black and Brown get down, to quote my friend Mary Moran. Um, And since the forum started 40 years ago, Mm -hmm. they've extended invitations to Democrats and Republicans, but only Democrats have participated so far. Huh? Like a presidential forum... Aimed at the black and brown communities, and only Democrats have participated in Iowa. That tells us a lot. But this year it was supposed to be different. Uh, Mr. Ford expected that things were going to be different because the Republicans have been talking about how much they're courting minority voters. In fact, the Iowa GOP chair initially said that Republicans were, quote unquote, especially keen to engage in conversations with groups like the Brown and Black Forums of America. Note the wrong wrong name of the thing, but that's okay. About how bold leadership and ideas can benefit all Americans regardless of race. And then nobody showed up. Nobody accepted the invitation. Um, Since Republicans lost 46 of the top 50 cities in the last election, you would think that they would take advantage of this opportunity. And maybe they're not because the exit polls are showing that black and Latino men are shifting towards Trump. So maybe they don't think this is this this is important. They've also failed to hold many, if any, um, events in predominantly Spanish speaking communities in Iowa. So I brought this to the podcast because I thought it was, um, you know, my grandmother always says, you know, Um, uh, I can show you better than I can tell you. And the Republicans are showing us better than they're telling us how they feel about minority voters in what is the most important presidential primary for them so far, where they're spending millions upon millions of dollars and lots of time, and they can't allocate any of that to black or brown communities. Thankfully, the Iowa caucus is not the best predictor for the presidency, For Republicans, since 1980, only once did the winner of the Iowa caucus win the presidency, and that was George W. Bush. So maybe it doesn't matter. Maybe we should just not pay attention to Iowa. But I think that at a time where Black voters are really trying to figure out who represents our interests and where we should be voting, um, this to me was a clear signal that the GOP is not it. Although Tiara's article told us maybe, uh, I don't even want to say it out loud. Um, (laughs) Y'all, the the people got to do better by us. The people, I mean, we saved this country over and over and over. Don't get me started. Okay, anyway. um, Yes, no Republican presidential candidates going to the black and brown get down in Iowa. And I thought you should know that.
5: Well, Well, you know, okay, so... How I see it is right now, we're witnessing almost like a political cult. That's how I feel. That's how I feel. And I think because I'm now an expert on cults because I was sick with COVID. So I was watching cult documentaries for two weeks straight. So now I'm an expert. <laughs> PhD in cults, y'all. Um, but now that I know that a cult is at its actual highest power when it does not need uh, the the marketing plan when people are just gravitating towards it because they're either sick of their life or because things are so bad or they're like searching for it. And that's how I kind of feel about Republicans. They don't, they, the the GOP don't need to do that because they don't need to do that. People are, people who they're not even censoring are being converted. Um, The, 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 the the opponent is, 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 is uh, cannibalizing themselves everywhere they go. So I don't, I'm not fooled by thinking that most people on that side want to win. They don't really care. So they would do it if it, Works, but it doesn't. So they don't care. <laughs> it's not, it's not just this moral, political, like it's the right thing to do no matter what happens. They don't care and they don't need to do it. And they're still getting people who are brown and black who are being converted, which is, a, which is a surprise for them because they're really honed in on a certain demographic being empowered and, um, and, 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 and energized to go vote. So if we get anybody else outside of that, it's all good. So. It it, it it when I think of evil genius mode, I'm like, yeah, I would I I would be like, yeah, let's save the money, like let's 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 not waste our time,
3: cause cause we cause we really don't care. This is a random thing that makes you think about it, but we have a lot of work to do with political education, and this article made me think of it, especially with regard to race. Is that like, I don't know if you saw, but Nikki Haley, um. Filled out that she was white on her forms when she ran, when she, to be president. She filled out the box and white. Nikki Haley is not white, everybody, just so you know. So I posted a picture of Nikki Haley's family, completely Indian family, on Instagram. And people wrote me back being like, really? They were like, Nikki Haley's not, I'm like... You thought she was white? I'm like, what? They were like, we had no clue. And I'm like, oh my, I just, I did it actually because I was annoyed at the news article about where she said she was white. Like, I thought it was so obvious she wasn't white. And then it wasn't until I posted the picture that I was like, oh, people really don't know. And then Kaya, to your point around the dollar spend, I actually had to go get something notarized. So Facebook, one of the fallouts from Cambridge Analytica is now to run ads, you have to like verify that you're who you say you are and it expires. So when mine expired, I had to go get a form notarized. So I'm sitting with the notary and she's like, why do you have to do this for Facebook? And I'm explaining Cambridge Analytica, the whole scandal to her. And she's like, never heard of it. Didn't know it was a thing. What did Trump do with Facebook? And I was like, oh, we got more work to do. She literally was just like, I didn't, I was like, you know, they sold, they like hacked the psychological profiles of everybody. They did this intense targeting. They poured a ton of money into it. Like, and she was like, yeah, never heard of it. And I was like, okay. Um, and to the dollar spin, Kaya, the Republicans have done, have just done a lot of work to get the message to the people easy to convert. They Trump was the beginning of it. Uh-huh. And I think our side has assumed the conversion and sort of spent money in the wild. I mean, this is DR's point. We could like make a t shirt of it is like, who are the consultants? Who are the, like, have spent probably as much money, but you're like, who are y'all talking to? Or like, what are y'all doing? And, and, um, and here we are. So, yeah.
4: And I'm not surprised by this at all. One, Republicans, I, Unfortunately, black and brown voters are coming to them. They don't got to go to where they are. Now, the difference, and I, this is why I keep talking about showing up and access. The Dems need to be in those spaces, right? So we need to make sure <laughs> that we are continuing to show up. So this this one doesn't it doesn't surprise me at all. And also, you have to think about the context of Iowa, and this is why you know, arguably there are many people on the on the progressive side that are like, why do we count Iowa so much anyway when one, there aren't a whole lot of Black people there and the Black people that they have there, they over-incarcerate. So I think Iowa's like sixth in the nation on over-incarceration of Black folks. Um, I think there's, Dre. I think they also like, it, the whole thing where they make folks that are incarcerated pay to be the, it's, it, it's Iowa's like a wild, wild, wild place when it comes to racial disparities. So- all that to say, I feel like this is a place where it would not make sense, but I think given the, the the history, the present, and the the political context of Iowa, where, you know, a Republican wouldn't necessarily go to the black and brown form. The black and brown form also has been around, y'all, for a very long time. This is like a historic thing um that has been around. And Vice Cause Paula was in, did hosted one year. Vice used to do a presidential forum too, and they they would work in coordination, as far as I remember, with the Black and Brown Forum. So it's it it definitely has a presence and an and is a, an important thing. But I can totally understand why, for so many reasons, um, Republicans would not go there.
5: So your point, DeRay, Um, I I don't know what you just commented on, like how information spreading. It really reminded me of conversations me and you've had. We I think we've all had. Uh, throughout our friendship about how somebody will be totally famous <laughs> and they'll have 50 million like people following them and somebody else won't know them it's interesting to think that's also happening with information that something could be totally compelling and you know without naming names we we know somebody who did not know about the claudine gay thing <laughs> and we know people who do know about that and we do and we know people who like or uh, how did you not know about that? And it's it's interesting to think that now information is being siloed in the same way celebrity is, too. So that was just a little tidbit that you made me think of with that.
3: I always think of that when I think about the shade room. What I know because of the, sh- the shade room they were talking to that. And I talk to people who just either aren't on Instagram or are not Black. And they literally are like, I have no clue. What you're talking about. Like, I don't know how much I know about, right. (laughs) right. I'm like, why do I even know anything? Like against my will, I know a lot about them. Um, Okay. So my news is actually about sickle cell. We've talked about sickle cell before. It is not a new topic on the pod, but what I wanted to bring here was about a rule that was proposed to be changed um, in health and human services in 2012. It was, went into effect in 2015 and had really intense outcomes for the approval of sickle cell treatment for kids. So we've already talked about before, and, and listeners maybe already know that Black people are overrepresented with sickle cell disease. The latest numbers say that about 1 in 365 kids are born with sickle cell. Black kids are born with sickle cell in a given year. Um, but what Health and Human Services said they were doing was streamlining the approval process, streamlining and updating um the the rules around reimbursement with regard to sickle cell and other blood diseases and what it turned into uh is that there was this belief amongst lawyers that the denials were going up and this group filed a public records request with um the social security administration to get the non-public data about denials between 2011 and 2020 And they were right. From 2011 to 2015, the denial rate for child sickle cell cases averaged 62.3%. In the years following the change, the rate soared to an average of 76% over five years. And then, um, and what they say is that about an estimated 1,400 kids who would have qualified under the old standards have been rejected under the new requirements. And the same thing... um, With whether somebody qualifies medically for SSI benefits um, with regard to sickle cell, before the 2015 rule change, 41.4% of children with sickle cell disease who made it to step three had their applications approved. In the years following, the rate dropped to an average of 27.2%. I bring this here uh, for a couple of reasons. One is that, you know, remember there hasn't been a permanent leader over in over at Social Security Administration for a long time. Uh, Martin O'Malley, the former governor of the great state of Maryland, is now the head of Social Security. So hopefully he comes in and, and this is one of the things. But how small, seemingly small rule changes have huge impacts on people's lives. And this is one that, you know, I don't think the Social Security Administration was intending to dismiss this many people from. Um, from receiving reimbursements or care around social, um, around sickle cell, but that is what happened. And the only silver lining about the issue—not necessarily the dismissals—I just bring this here as an issue of disparity that has not been corrected—is that there does look to be something like a cure for a sickle cell for the first time ever. So CRISPR, the gene editing software, has successfully uh, treated people, uh, kids, adults with sickle cell. Uh, And it looks like this actually might be a viable long-term solution, which is really cool. Uh, As you might know, people with sickle cell have just had to, there've been medicines to alleviate the pain, but have not been able to actually cure sickle cell. Uh, And it looks like there's a path for a cure that's coming, which is really cool. And hopefully it is not you know, a gazillion dollars in the end, which might make it prohibitive. Um, but they have successfully been able to um, to do it, which is actually really, really dope. And I say, hopefully it's not too um, expensive because it has been expensive so far. So one of them costs $2.2 2 million for one-time treatment and the other one costs $3.1 million for a one-time treatment.
0: <sighs> Lord, child, you live long enough and- you keep seeing the same things happen. Um, And it is, I I don't know. The thing that, that this reminded me of is we are in love with policy solutions. We like to, I don't know who the we is, but people are in love with policy solutions. We feel like if we just write the rules differently, then everything follows. And that is so not often the case. And so these people who thought they were doing something, I don't know, literally undid the thing that they were supposed to be doing. And they never checked back to see how things were working out. And so I think it highlights the disconnect between policymakers and the people who are affected by their policies. I think it requires um, that when we write policy, we have some kind of checks, right? Like why aren't we, why did we wait until now to check on the implications of a rule from 2015 where that's literally nine years ago. And so we've let this thing happen for nine years and thousands upon thousands of kids who have this incredibly debilitating disease. I don't know if you know anybody who has sickle cell, but it's horrible. It's a horrific disease. And we we have the opportunity to deal with it. And nobody went back and checked until these lawyers who had done the thing, you know, way before, said, let's check and see how it's going. And also, shout out to the nonprofit organizations and advocacy organizations who keep their eye on these issues. But I would say that this is something that really is a huge policy failure. Um, There's an accountability failure. And I wonder what it would take to build some kind of a systemic apparatus that makes people check on the impact of the policies. I think about... I think about education because that's the field that I know most. And, you know, the education policies around teacher evaluation that happened in the mid-2000s were catastrophic because we needed teacher evaluation overhauls. Everybody thought if they just changed the state regulations that everything would happen differently. And the implementation was so bad. I could think about the Common Core standards. I could think about a lot of policies in education that were implemented that were written differently at the state level or at the local level. And then the implementation was so terrible, it actually did more harm than good. We'll never go back to re-examining teacher evaluation to make sure that that it is... Um, impactful and important because we screwed the pooch on the policy work that happened. And so I just think that there are so many policies that get enacted that have significant impact on people's lives, as you pointed out, DeRay, that somehow or another, we are not checking back to see if the rule changes have had the appropriately intended consequences, and we got to do better. Policymakers should not be able to sleep without checking back to make sure that what they did did what it was intended to do
5: I think like the quiet part the silent part is is probably not being checked on because who's it who it's mostly yep. affecting say it say who, it and, and 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 who is um uh, mostly suffering from this disease uh you know the only thing that I can say when we bring th- things like this to the podcast is just the zoom out that these type of things shouldn't be politicized. These type of things should not have financial incentive. Of course, I know that is so that's such an easy sentence to say, such a complex thing to initiate. But I always just want to truth tell <laughs> when these articles come up that this should not be a policy and this should not be a profit. This is somebody's life, and we have enough. Um, uh, we we have enough resources in this in this nation in order for this not to be um something that uh that we're not that that we're not playing political games or profit games with somebody's life and suffering and health okay y'all walk with me <laughs> um you know i've been on this podcast for a very long time now and it feels like maybe every at least annually I've been talking about Monique, and I've been just really giving her as much support as I could because I really felt like the things she was bringing up were important. Well, today, via Complex News, I'm not talking about Monique, but I am talking about Taraji P Henson because Taraji P Henson is bringing up things that very closely parallel the troubles that Monique was name that, that Monique was naming, um, and I'm gonna tie this all. Back to each other. Um, Taraji Pinson, So this news article, if you, if, you, if you, I'm sure everybody's got different sources because she's really taken every press opportunity to um, totally uh, debunk the fantasy you might have in your head about making this film. Um, but this latest one, she was talking about her not getting a um, her not getting a driver to. Um, back and forth from um, set. So in an interview with New York Times, Hinton revealed that she and the cast of The Color Purple had to drive themselves to work in rental cars. I was like, I can't drive myself to set in Atlanta. This is insurance liability. It's dangerous, she said. What do I look like taking myself to work by myself in a rental car? So I was like, can I get a driver or security to take me? I'm not asking for the boom. She continued, they're like, well, if we do it for you, we got to do it for everybody. We'll, we'll do it for everybody. It's stuff like that. Stuff I couldn't have to fight for. I shouldn't have to fight for. I was on the set of Empire Fighting for trailers that weren't infested with bugs. Um Okay, so it's 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 usually protocol and like she said, an insurance liability for talent um, actors, uh, specifically principal actors, to be driven back and forth. It's not just because oh this is luxurious and it's Hollywood. It's because um, we want to make sure that your exhausted, overworked tail ain't hurting yourself because we about to get a return on our money and we can't. And we, so it's 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 protocol. So I think sometimes when we talk about this, it's painted with a with a um uh, I well some people were painting it with a um a prima donna uh, paintbrush and I was like. It's not that. It's really just kind of protocol. And this this story and these series of stories that I've been hearing from Taraji P. Henson really, really just boggle my mind. First thing that comes to my mind is... I wonder how much fictive kinship was weaponized in order for these things to have a, to to for these things to happen meaning I wonder if it was black people telling Taraji P Henson that she doesn't deserve this or she can't get this or we can't do this and that actually swelled how she would react to that because it's one of your people saying it and i don't know i do know why because i want to kind of name how sometimes we talk about um disparities inside of um hollywood and how it's always um a white body or a white face doing it and sometimes it's a black person who has swallowed white supremacy to quote td jakes um who has swallowed white supremacy And, and who's spitting it back out. It's not always somebody with a white body in and in a, in a, in a white face doing these things. And I think it's, it, I think it's important for us to um, complicate that. Um, the other thing that I wanted to bring out about this is I wish Taraji P. Henson showed more solidarity with Monique a couple of years ago when Monique was going on her tour. I think that how Taraji P. is doing it's smarter because I think that she, Taraji P. Henson right now can't be painted as bitter or as somebody who um, is just upset about anything because she is right this big success and this huge movie that called The Color Purple. So we kind of receive what she's saying differently because why Why would you just say something like that? And I think that the black ball and the bitter thing was able to be painted on Monique. But I think that when we're not in, um, specifically when I think about black people, specifically when I think about black women and black queer folks, I think that when we're not in numbers and we're not doing it in, 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 in mass, often one person can get Pat pat it on the back, and then shh. Whereas if there's multiple people saying it for multiple different things, and maybe even naming the same people, (laughs) often things a little bit more systemic can be shifted. But yeah, I brought this to the podcast because A, it's just everywhere. I thought it was really interesting. Um, I hated The Color Purple. I really hated that remake. I really uh, thought everybody's performances were really great. Um, but I thought the writing and the director to directorial choices were really disturbing. And it makes it even more disturbing to think that y'all didn't even have fun. They had more fun on Mamma Mia than y'all did. So not only was this not a good... <laughs> You know, for me, not a good, not a good remake, not a good remake. And I think that there was so, so many just, um, just, just, just poor choices made. But at least I could, in the back of my head, I could say, well, at least they were having fun, child, and everything was going good and they got made some money. But from what I'm hearing, the money wasn't that long and the fun wasn't that high. So I would push more black people to say no when the check, when when you when you when you're when you're seeing that you're being undervalued the first time, don't even get into the ring when you're being undervalued because it doesn't get better. You don't you don't magically get um, valued in the middle of a thing when you entered it being undervalued. And even if they do say, okay, we're gonna get you that, we're gonna get you this much more money, there's still gonna be other things. Like, Taraji P. Henson, that is, a, that is a walking gold statue. She should not be driving herself anywhere at any time, let alone to uh to her own films. Like, no, it's just mind-boggling. So, yeah, I want to hear y'all's thoughts.
4: Well, first, anytime she's quoted in an article, I can actually hear her voice <laughs> in my head as I'm reading it. So... I just, listen, I love Taraji. She's a DC girl like me. I've been following her forever and I'm such a huge fan. And so, so, so much of this, because I, unlike Cat Williams, I didn't sit there and watch the whole thing, but I watched this interview and she's, it's heartbreaking because there's so much pain because she's worked so hard against so many odds. And she's like, you know, Taraji's a a trained actress. Like it's not... (laughs) you know she's so i think i think it's always begs the question of like when you do all the things you're supposed to do and then you're still left devalued and still left making less and still left like you know i just feel like she's so bruised now by hollywood like it's just it's just so sad. And, and then the other stories I heard too, of like how much of a mentor she was on this set when it came to Fantasia and helping Fantasia, you know, not take Seeley home with her. And it, it. so it's just, it just seemed like Taraji was the person who was producing and so much in, in, in such a way with this film and making sure that everyone felt held and protected in the fun that they did have was fun that she was facilitating. So I think you're right, Miles. I think I think that's probably what is so profound about this is that I think it's like, oh, this is going to be amazing and it's going to be a Black cast and it's a Black story and such an important one. Um, and we're just going to be in community and really be held and uplifted. And then you get there and you having to be HR, you got to be a driver, you got to make sure the trailers are all right, you the operations person, and you just supposed to be there. And on top of that, she b- trained to sing for a whole year. You know, it's just the 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 labor is just, I think, what came to me as I have been watching, as I watched the interview and have been seeing what's come out since.
0: Two things that this made me think about. One, I identify completely with Taraji's um, comparisons to, you know, her value versus other people's values. Um, walk a mile in a Black woman leader's shoes and you have been undervalued. I remember, you know, them telling me that I should make literally, you know, I don't know, something like $85,000 less than my predecessor when I was at DC Public Schools, even though I had more experience and yada yada yada, and I was like, okay, let's go to court with that, um, and then it got fixed real fast. And so I think this is par for the course as Black women leaders, we're always undervalued, we always have to fight. Um, the thing that this left me wondering was, what is the audience like? What is the right lever to get Black women paid differently in? In um, in Hollywood, because I don't I don't think that it is like I think that the appeal to the broader culture, right? Black women should get paid more. Like we can sympathize with Taraji, but we're not the people who actually can force change. I don't think. Maybe we can. You'll tell me that we can. But like, the thing is, I wonder what it's going to take to make people, I mean, Miles didn't say it, but he said it like, this is Oprah, the Black lady who produced this film. And so you would expect that at least in our own communities, we would be recognized. And I didn't watch the Danielle Brooks clip. So, you know, I think Oprah swooped in and fixed it or whatever, whatever. But the fact that we're even in this situation on a Black production feels not okay. And so who, what is the right lever? What pushes Hollywood studios to do right by people? What pushes casting agencies to do right by people when they're negotiating people's contracts? I'm not sure that it's the like broad PR campaign. Oh my gosh, we feel so badly for Taraji. Cause let me tell you, my cousins with them were like, "Mm, okay, Taraji, you still make way more than most of us. And so we don't feel sorry for you. Right. And so I think that there is Um, a question around what is the appropriate audience or what are the ways that we can actually push change. I think you're right, Miles, that it is different when groups of people come together. Like I think about what the Hollywood Writers' Strike was able to accomplish when writers came together and did this. But I, I worry right now that Taraji is out here on her own sort of saying the thing and making the complaint and just like... Many of these other black women that we've talked about as unprotected in a space that wasn't created for us and isn't gonna get what she wants out of this. There are gonna be a bunch of studios that are like, "Oh, she's so difficult. She is the one who wants clean trailers and blah blah blah, and whatever, whatever." And they're not talking about the fact that that's par for the course for other people. I just worry about how we push change without making leaving black women on the sacrificial altar because I feel like. Taraji has sort of thrown herself there and there's no guarantee that with this level of candor and transparency that it's going to pay off for her in her next movie. I hope it does. But I want to figure out what are the other ways that we can support pushing studios and agencies to do something different by Black women without, you know, Taraji bearing the brunt of this.
3: Yeah, I was struck by Danielle Brooks. Um, She also addressed this in in another interview where she was like, you know, one of the reasons why she didn't say anything in those in the, in that time before Taraji sort of stood up for all of them was because she, it was the, I'm happy to be here. She was like, I didn't know. She was like, this was one of my, you know, she was a TV star. This is one of her first feature films. And she was like, I you know, I don't know what the, how I work here, how the rules work. And, And we really do get played sometimes by that process. And I don't know if you saw, but yesterday on the red carpet at the Golden Globes, Oprah actually addressed this head on and said, you know, I know people have um, seen Taraji's interviews. She was like, "I I was told my name was trending last night and let me just clear up some things. And Oprah said, you know, I was an EP, so I'm not there. I'm not making nobody's decisions about whatever. But the moment I heard things are going on, I addressed them. And she was like, you know, this Warner Brothers is the decision maker. They set the salaries and they they sort of. And the moment that I realized something was off, I stepped in and she was like, you know, Taraji would say that to you. I'll say it with you. She was like, why would I on a movie like this, you know, go out? of Like, why would I not protect people? I didn't know. And I I bring that up because it goes back to what we always say in organizing. It goes back to Kaya, your push is that like good people do not really matter in a structure that's broken. Like, if the structure doesn't change, good people are going to exhaust themselves trying to keep everybody up to flow. So, Oprah was a good person in a structure that's broken, and she up here having to get people food, having to get them cars, having to, and you're like, that just is not a sustainable thing. So I'm interested in in somebody who knows more about film and, and TV thinking through what the structural fix is here uh, so that we don't need to rely on good people being in the room to alleviate or mitigate the damages of a broken system. Well, that's it. Thanks so much for tuning in to of the People this week. Tell your friends to check it out and make sure you rate it wherever you get your podcast, whether it's Apple Podcasts or somewhere else. And we'll see you next week. Pods of the People is a production of Crooked Media. It's produced by AJ Moultray and mixed by Evan Sutton. Executive produced by me, and special thanks to our weekly contributors, Kai Henderson, DR Ballinger, and Miles E. Johnson.